Welcome to the Monsters of Fantasy. This was written, produced, recorded, and edited by me, Sean McCarter. Monsters of Fantasy is a production in which I will explore the truly horrific side of the fantasy world known as Dungeons and Dragons. There are content warnings in the show notes below. Episode 9 The Skeleton Cadwin picked this week's entry for his Festival of the Dead. Said it was the first one he got taken since he got hired on and it fits the theme perfectly. He described the whole ordeal like a storytelling spell. Sort of like a charm person except it got the man talking and answering questions. Meanwhile, a quill and paper would magically be recording. He said that's probably how all of these statements or stories or whatever have been acquired. I myself haven't seen the process, but I am rather interested because not once has anyone here taken me out for a drink. He said that him, Nico, and Daisy were out at a tavern in Voron celebrating their recent acquisition of a very rare magic item, an ornately made rug that had been imbued with a special kind of magic that, when you shouted, floppity, it would start hovering and flying. I've seen it myself since, a rather small but very fast carpet. It was apparently getting late that afternoon, and the patrons were filtering out of the bar, and one guy deep in his cups was bragging about his occupation and all the weird stuff he'd seen as a grave digger. Nico went over to chat him up and talk to him. Cadwin admitted at the time he thought the spell was just the magical self-writing instruments, and didn't realize until later that the spell had indeed a charm-like effect. Not until he read a few more of these himself. Here is the story of Mr. Bones and the attack that happened at his cemetery during the Festival of the Dead. I'm Mr. Bones, all right. It's not just what they call me. It's a family name. A name I've had for a long time and a name I'll have till I myself am lowered into the cold, dark earth. I am a gravedigger by birth, nature, heart, and everything. I don't know if you've ever experienced destiny, but when you know what you want to do with your life, it is peaceful and it is freeing. Now that does not mean grave digging is an easy job, oh no. Grave tending is hard work, especially in the king's court. I also want you to know I wasn't a shut-in or some weirdo. I have a wife, three beautiful children, and two grandchildren. It's just, they're not relevant to this story, but... I do have a family that I love and cherish deeply. Honestly, aside from my oldest boy who will be taking on the trade after me, I tend not to bring work home. I'm willing to bet anyone who lives outside the walls, much less Voron as a whole, has to deal with as much as I do when it comes to grave tending. It's hard to explain if you aren't in the trade yourself. You'd think my job probably consists of digging graves on the daily, maybe cleaning up the trash and debris left by a grieving families. Maybe you'd figure the occasional attempted grave robber. But even then, you'd figure that only happened every few years or so. Well, that may be true enough for a small town, like the grave diggers down in Little Point or Hill Swallowed Farms, but for a grave digger in the big cities, it can be a nightmare. Much less for one who watches over the most valuable graves in all of Vora. Possibly the world. Now let me clarify, my family has been looking over the King's Court Cemetery for the past 732 years, but it isn't what a lot of tourists think it is. No, this is not where the past monarchs are buried, and I do not know where the late King Kaiwen may be buried either. 
The King's Court Cemetery has been and always will be the home for all the wealthy families that live inside the inner walls. When fate calls them to their final resting place, there I stand, shovel in hand, ready to aid them. Famous adventurers, wealthy politicians, or even the most respected generals, all of them will eventually meet their end, and I will be there to lower them into the ground. Now, I can smell it on you, old man. You've dabbled yourself with some necromancy before, and I'm not coming at you cross or anything. I'm just warning you. Over the years, I've had to keep an eye out for such things. Now, our family has nothing against it, especially in my line of work. Tons of people can't bear with the loss of a loved one and will do anything to get them back. I don't care as long as you go through the legal process of retrieving a corpse. There's even a priest that we've contracted. At a rate of 2200 gold, you or a loved one can be brought back to life. What they don't tell you is those same souls that we desperately try returning to their flesh prisons may not want to come back. But there are souls that try to come back on their own. Now, I ain't too deep into religion, and I sure as shit don't know anything about the studies of Arcane, so I can't explain how it works, but I know that once a year, nearing, or if not on, the Festival of the Dead, it's easier to communicate with the dead. And necromantic magic is stronger and more powerful. But even without the aid of a necromancer, sometimes during the Festival of the Dead, a corpse or two will try reanimating itself. Before this incident, I had only had to deal with six, maybe seven separate occasions of a stray corpse actually returning from the dead. My encounters usually consisted with wandering lost ghosts that are trying to pass on, or with some sneaking adventurers who didn't want to pay a proper resurrection and were trying to dig up their friends themselves, or the ones who had heard a rumor of someone being buried with their riches and magical items. See, because of this, my family trained a lot to be stronger than what you might think, and well, I can usually handle myself. That's why I was alone that night. While I'm the main proprietor of the lot, I still had help. Notably at the time, my two boys were working under me. They'd want to go to a party being held at the college. Neither of them had made it nor attempted any kind of studies, but they were adults even if they were still living under my roof, so who was I to deny them some fun? I knew it was likely that if anything were to happen or go wrong, it would be that night, sure, but... I wasn't an idiot in that regard. I still stand by that. I figured at most I would stop a group of adventurers trying to use the Festival of the Dead for a free resurrection, or maybe I mean maybe a zombie or two. In more recent years, we'd contracted with the coffin maker to reinforce the coffin so things like this were less likely to happen in the future. You know, doing my due diligence and all that, but that still doesn't stop the fact that I was all alone when some idiot college kids had decided to unleash hell itself on my cemetery. It was getting late in the night, and I remember thinking to myself that morning had to be coming soon. I couldn't see anything from my watchtower, but the large clock tower in the center of King's Court surely read well past midnight. I could, however, see a drunken group of college students who had stumbled in and were walking around my cemetery. There were five of them, a young female tiefling with long blonde hair and a warm pinkish skin tone. She wore a costume that made her look like a succubus, or so I guessed. It could very well have been a sexualized version of any of the fiends, and, by the hushed whispers by her drunken friends, she was Sydney. And Sydney was dating Kurt, this tall, muscular, and fit young human who was dressed up like a rancher or cattle driver of some sort except he wasn't wearing a shirt, and his clothes were far too clean to have ever raised any cattle. 
There was another kid, Barry, a round and squat halfling who was dressed up as some sort of futuristic automaton. You know the machines that can move themselves? I've heard them in stories of fiction, and the best I can describe it. If he hadn't been carrying around the box that would cover his head, I would have never even known that Barry had short curly black hair in the shape of a bowl and was wearing incredibly thick bifocals. The last two were Lori and Quentin. Lori was either a half-elf or elf, never got the chance to ask, who was dressed up like a generic murderer carrying around a large butcher's knife and an apron that was splattered with red paint. Quentin, on the other hand, was completely covered from the neck down in bandages to make himself look like one of the ancient mummies of Rakir. They were all very clearly pissed drunk, and I could smell a strong smell of moon grass on them. I got nothing against moon grass. I used to use it myself to relax sometimes, but I could tell whatever party they had recently come from must have been a really exciting one, if you know what I mean. Apparently at this party, someone had given Barry a torn page out of a book. I couldn't see the page or anything, but the rest of the drunken group seemed very impressed by it. They were all saying they couldn't read it and that it made no sense, but it looked sick, as they called it. Then Sydney hushed them all, saying that she could read it, and that it was infernal. I kind of feel bad that I didn't react to this, but you see, up until this point, I heard that this individual group of students were just a part of the general studies. People who wanted to be scholars, but didn't really have a knack for arcane. I had a long lowered my guard on them actually doing anything aside from trashing my cemetery. So when Sydney began reading the paper, and her voice started resonating through the air, I immediately knew something was wrong, but it was too late. I don't know Infernal, so I can't tell you what she said, and I never got to look at the page myself. All I know is that from my watchtower, as she finished reading those words, I felt the very cold, dead earth begin to shake. Not a rough earthquake or anything, just a soft rumbling that caused the floor to shake a little. I pulled out my spyglass to now get a better look at the group. They were only about 500 or so feet from me and the watchtower, so that, plus the lanterns I kept lit up at night through the walk paths, had a very good front row seat to the stupidity and horror that I witnessed that night. I first noticed black lines starting to splinter in the grass in a giant circle, all splintering lines of earth crawling towards Sydney. The rest of the group noticed, but in their drunken stupor, all Kurt could manage was dumbly asking them if they saw what was happening, which they all kind of just stared and started nodding in agreement. It wasn't until the cracks started to become fissures had they started snapping to their senses. Lori and Quentin started backing away as a giant rift in the earth formed, separating them from the other three. Quentin extended his hand for Barry to catch on to, but for some reason, Barry wasn't climbing on or grabbing him. At this point, the chunk of earth that held the three had pushed up to almost six feet into the air. They were bickering back and forth about something, and I watched Barry drop his prop and rush over to Sydney because she was starting to fall from the upheaval. Unfortunately, Barry caught his foot on his fake automaton head and tripped on the ground and was now falling off the very ledge he was trying to save Sydney from. Kurt also sprang into action but didn't flounder like Barry and swept Sydney in his arms, bringing her back to the now 12-foot-high earth plateau. I could see bits of old skeletal remains sticking out from the mound, most unrecognizable from being underground for centuries, but occasionally I could see a chunk of skull sticking out, and I couldn't help but think the empty eye sockets were looking at me. I looked down and noticed at the base of the rising platform Barry was cradling his leg. It couldn't have been broken, he had only fallen a few feet, maybe sprained at worst. I shouted at him if he was okay, but poor boy was so out of it he couldn't tell where the shouting was coming from. 
I watched his eyes lock with Quentin and Lori, who had now drifted about three feet from the other side of the rift, and it was still growing ever wider. Bones started falling out from the rising mound of dirt and landing all around Barry. Quentin jumped over the trench and tried helping Barry up, but it looked like his foot was stuck. I focused on his foot and there it was, a thin set of white bones wrapped tightly around his ankle. I saw them trying to yank and pull, but each time they did so, the earth around them started to burst as if they were pulling out a giant root. Then, with one giant heave, Barry and Quentin pulled almost an entire skeleton out of the earth. It was still covered in the old armor it had been buried with, but at this point it was so tattered and worn I couldn't tell what family it belonged to. I watched as they both started kicking violently at the skeleton as Barry climbed to his feet. All the bones, the ones in the large mass of earth and the ones that littered the base of the structure started shaking slightly, as if some invisible force was pushing them out of the earth. I could see the bones on the ground moving like rigid white caterpillars, all forming different shifting piles of bone and tattered clothes. I watched a skull push its way from the earth and fall down to the platform below. It cracked into the ground and rolled until it stopped abruptly at a pair of boots. I then watched a pair of skeletal bone hands reach down and pick up the skull and firmly affix it to its spine. Quentin had gotten Barry up to his feet now, but it was already too late. The horde of bones that surrounded them were no longer piles, but full skeletal constructs puppeteered by whatever dark magic they released. This was worse than your occasional run-in with the undead, though. Those kids summoned an army. I looked up top, and I shit you not, the two lovebirds were starting to make out up there. And given by how handsy the two were, I'd think the two were about to fuck right then and there had Lori not let out an air-rending scream. She was shouting at the two boys to hurry up and jump back to the other side, but while I couldn't hear it, it seemed that they had convinced her to run on ahead and make her way hastily towards the complete opposite direction, towards the watchtower. The lovebirds had now become aware of the situation as some of the skeletons started climbing up to them. There had to be about 40 or so in total. Some of them carried long rusted swords and family armors, but others were just splintered and cracked bare skeletons. The ones climbing up to the top, though, were met by a frightened and screaming Sydney. Kurt was doing his best at trying to kick some of them away, but I saw his foot get stuck in the jawbone of one, and before he could dislodge it, the skeleton grabbed his leg and started dragging him off the edge, towards the mass that was waiting at the bottom. I had almost forgotten about the others and swung my eyeglass back down towards them, and saw that unfortunately Barry had been grappled by about four skeletons and had a sword sticking out of the box that made the chest piece of his costume. Instead of the silver painting that indicated metal, it was now cloaked in a dark red. I saw Quentin being chased off the platform and he was running towards where I last saw Lori. The trench though was now almost eight feet wide. I watched Quentin hurl himself through the air with the skeletons grasping at the edge, some of them falling off into the darkness themselves. One had caught a piece of Quentin's costume, but he was already flying through the air, the fabrics of the mummy, unraveling to reveal his private linens. He made it to the other side, though, running through the darkness in his underwear. I tried finding Lori in my spyglass, but I couldn't, so instead I scanned back to the top of the towering platform. There I saw, being thrown off the edge, was the beaten and bloodied body of Sydney, being chunked into the mass of skeletons below. I looked around for the half-naked cowboy, but I couldn't find him. I shouted as loud as I could, and as clear as I could. You drunken fools, run to the watchtower. I then grabbed my shovel and rushed into the night.
I realized then that the skeletons were actually quite fragile things. I was shocked when I swung with all of my strength at the head of the thing shambling at me, and it exploded, splintering me with bone shards. The rest of the skeletal mass seemingly crumpled to the ground. Luckily, whatever necromantic magic keeping these things up wasn't that strong, and it kind of became sport out there. I'm not saying it was fun or anything, but it was kind of funny at how even with their numbers advantage, I was striking three, sometimes four of them, before even one could strike at me. Okay, yeah, I did kind of get carried away with myself down there, just crunching rib cages and spines alike. I was in the middle of bashing the skull of one of the bastards against a tombstone when Kurt ran into me. He looked like he was mostly alright, a few scrapes and bruises, but nothing too bad. I told him he had to go wait up at the watchtower and wait for his friends. But then he kept asking me about Sydney, and I regrettably told him that she likely hadn't made it, and that he had left her behind, and she was most likely already dead. He started shouting nonsense at me in a flustered hysteria, said he was going to go back and save her, that he had to. I tried grabbing him and shouting that he didn't really need to do anything. He ran from my grip though, shoving his way back into the horde of skeletons, shouting that he had to save Sydney. He didn't get more than 30 feet into the wave that was chasing him. His vest and chaps did not offer him the protection even the simple leathers did, so by the time I slashed and smashed my way through to him, his chest was already flayed open. I cursed the air and ran back to the watchtower, and it seemed the earth at this point had stopped moving so no new fishes were popping up and the flow of bones forming into skeletons had also stopped, but I want to make sure at least one of these fools had made it to the watchtower. When I got back I saw a bunch of skeletons surrounding the base, a few of them had climbed their way up and were bashing against the trap door. Whoever was up there was at least smart enough to lock the door once they made it in but it wouldn't be long until the skeletons climbing up would inevitably find their way through the window of the structure. I leapt into action once again, losing myself in the flailing of limbs and attacks. It had been many years since my father sent me the train at the Citadel, but it felt nice to really stretch out my old bones like I used to. You see, even smug adventurers tend to stop even if I threaten to dislocate a kneecap. Meanwhile, these things were fragile, but there was just so many of them. I'm not saying I had trouble, oh no, just that. I had fun while I was out there fighting, despite it being so one-sided. I think it took me less than a minute to crush the last of the living skeletons. As quick as their horror began, I had ended it. I climbed up and pushed through the trap door, but it was still locked. I called out to them to open it up, and after some back and forth about if my voice was to be trusted, I heard the latch come undone and I found myself looking at two very frightened but much alive teens. Quentin was still in his underwear and was covered in scrapes and bruises, but otherwise he was fine. Lori honestly looked fine aside from one bruise on her head. She said she had gotten while running away when she fell right into an open grave. She had to fight her way out using her kitchen knife, but was able to make it to the watchtower. I asked them to explain what happened, but either in shock or drunken stupor, they couldn't really give me a straight answer. She said they were at a party earlier that evening, and some guy was telling him that he could cast spells and shit. Apparently Barry had gotten jealous and decided to steal a page out of his spell book. The rest, well, you know. I know you don't care about the damage I had to contract out from a set of mages to get fixed, nor about the resulting legal battles that ensued due to the deaths that happened on my property. I got away with them, obviously. Even a few families came back and tried to pay me to set up a resurrection for their poor baby who had been taken too soon. But each and every one of them, Barry, Sidney, and Kurt, had failed. 
Now I know that the only reason that happens is if a soul isn't willing to return. That's what I told the families that they were happy in their afterlife. I know the reasons those souls never returned. Whatever magic took place that night not only trapped their bodies, but their souls six feet underground. End of story. Cadwin still says he thinks it's a lie, but Nico says rest assured that no one can willingly lie under his spell. That's good to know, Nico, but just some of these stories can't even be proven in the slightest, or have very evident contradicting information. I'll go ahead and say I've read through some of the other stories. There's ones not yet recorded that detail things that are unfathomable. Things that couldn't possibly exist. The ones that when I try reading them, the language is so alien and foreign that my eyes are getting lost in the script. But you know it is funny though, Nico. It seems that I've picked up halflings since I started working here. I like to read a lot, and I know a few languages, but I can't actually remember learning halfling, but... Either way. Having been the only two who have not met Mr. Bones, Luna and I went out to go pay him a visit. I can confirm he is a very real and very muscular man, but he was not just a strong man. It seemed he had a very good head for business. His family had been working inside the capital of Vaughan, dating back to the past five monarchs. We tried finding Laurie and Quinton for their versions of the events that took place, but because of a lack of last names, it was really hard to ask around. Luna used to go there, though, so I had her ask around the inner circle, and apparently a student in the general studies of the college passed away at a shockingly young age. His heart had stopped in his sleep. The whereabouts of Lori are unknown. The Skeleton Physiology The skeleton is an undead humanoid that we categorize based off of one major attribute, the lack of flesh and organs. They are the skeletal remains of a creature being animated by necromantic magic. There are numerous ways to reanimate the dead, either good or bad. But if the thing that is brought back is just a pile of bones, then yeah, it's a skeleton. While there are skeletons that can be summoned from the remains of, say, trolls or dragons, those bones are magical in themselves and will require their own entries. So, weaknesses and resistances. <sighs> well, if we're going to have an undead entry every week this month because of the Festival of the Dead, then whoever's listening, if you're doing so chronologically... You might be hearing this a lot. Due to its lack of body, the skeleton is completely immune to all variants of poison, and doesn't need to sleep or eat. However, they are just pile of bones, and it's very effective to just hit them with a large bludgeoning weapon. Kind of like a shovel. Other than that, encountering them would be just like any other monster. Actually, I don't want to sound impotent towards Mr. Bones and the unfortunate souls he could not save, but I would rank a singular skeleton very low. Not quite like the pixie, but it is one of the weakest monsters we've listed so far. Anyone slightly familiar with combat, hand-to-hand, -hand, or arcane, won't have much trouble with them. Abilities. Despite their lack of eyes, the magic that keeps them animated allows them to see, even in the dark. Another fun note here is that despite anything at all in their skulls, it seems that they can understand languages. They can't respond or anything, but their jaws will move and clack and their heads will tilt and sway, indicating that they do understand other creatures besides their necromancer caster. Attacks. The skeleton will attack in much the same way a normal humanoid would. They can be adorned in armor and grab onto weapons, so pretty much anything goes as far as what you can encounter. However, it does seem that any summoned skeleton has to resort to physical attacks and cannot tap into the arcane powers they once knew in life. End of Entry. 
Now, as Mr. Bones pointed out, I decided to do some research into his claims. It does seem that on the day of the death, that necromantic spells are significantly easier to cast. I guess I never noticed before, but a lot of spells that typically require little to no arcane energy to cast will take no toll on the user, and even the effects or durations might be exaggerated or extended. On rare occasions, seemingly all lining up with the height of our largest moon, will resurrection spells take no toll on the caster. Though it seems this isn't really common knowledge to the masses, many do believe it was just superstition. I can say firsthand that it is true. I know how to curse people, and Luna convinced me that it would be funny to play a prank on Cade when yesterday, so I decided to throw off his balance a little bit, make him a little clumsy. Now normally when I speak the words of magic I feel a slight tug in my gut and I can feel a little bit of energy leave me like a breath of wind. However, this time I felt nothing, and instead of only lasting for a minute like normally, it went on for eight hours. I hope he's not going back and listening to these, because we did not have the heart to tell him. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode of Monsters of Fantasy, please share it with your friends and family, or leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at MonstersOf underscore for all news and teasers for upcoming episodes. Today's spooky skeleton story was to show how a lot of the jobs we see as mundane in the fantasy world can be very, very dangerous. Join me next week as we continue the Halloween-themed monsters and stories throughout the month of October with The Flesh Golem. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.